0: Colleen to work on Easter stuff, so kids, feel free to go ahead and head that way. For the rest of you, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. um, Let's start in the book of 1 Timothy, and so if you have your text, always a good thing to bring your Bible to church. Turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament, and uh, it will be after 1 and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and of course before 2nd Timothy. And uh, chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. Uh, Really, we're going to be in 1st Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Those will be the two passages that we will kind of hang out in uh, this morning. And uh, we will begin in 1st Timothy chapter 3. And so as you're flipping there... I'd invite you to go ahead and do that, and uh, this morning we're going to be in part two of our sermon series, a four-part sermon series called The Ox. Um, Last week, of course, I took the Sunday off, and I'm grateful for that. We had a great message uh, from Craig Stimpert on the gospel, and uh, very helpful and useful. I I thought it was really good, and I appreciate him coming to do that. Uh, So we're going to pick back up in kind of a a four-part series again called The Ox. And we are, and will continue to for about four weeks, uh, look at the the subject of church leadership, and specifically the subject of eldership. And so that's where we're heading this morning. So as you're in 1 Timothy 3, let's do this. Uh, I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time, and uh, then we'll get started. Father, thanks for the morning. Thank you for uh, these dear people who are here um, to hear from your word, to be transformed by it, and uh, to submit themselves uh, to the teachings of Christ. And so help us now Give us receptive hearts. Help us to um, think rightly about who we are and who you have us to be. Father, specifically as we look at the character of the men uh, that you desire to lead your church here at Grace and churches all around the world um, called pastors and elders and overseers. Uh, Father, may we uh, be challenged. Uh, May we look at our own hearts and our own lives and our own characters uh, to see how we match and how we measure up uh, to the high calling of having a character that is like Christ and qualified to lead your church, which your son purchased with his blood. And so help us now, give us wisdom, spirit, move, make us soft, and speak through me that I might speak accurately and rightly about your word. In great power and boldness, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, um, before Craig came, we kind of were in part one, and I'm calling this series the ox uh, because in First Timothy, uh, Paul likens elders, pastors, senior leaders in the church to ox. Uh, that is, they plod day by day, hard work, doing the, the work of plodding a spiritual ground. And so I want to do a bit of review. Last week in part one, the ox and his church, we basically tackled the question: uh, What is leadership supposed to look like in the church? What is God's design for how the church? is to be led, and so I'm going to ask uh, that we put up the picture at this point. Um, hopefully, this will be a fresh reminder as to where we've been uh, by way of summary. And so last week we saw uh, a few things. Number one, we saw that the church is ultimately to be led by what I would call Pastor Jesus, and so you see that Jesus is on the top level. It's His church; He purchased it by His blood. He is uh, legitimately our senior pastor, and so I don't know if I can call myself that because Jesus really is the pastor of the church. He's the senior. Leader. Leader and all other authority and leadership in the church is appointed by him and, and it's a derived authority. And so we start with Jesus. Um, last week we then saw that, uh, that Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, in cooperation with current leaders and uh, the body of Christ, uh, that elders are to be appointed. And so we basically saw then that elders are essentially under shepherds. You can say that elders, pastors, overseers, I believe that all of these terms are synonymous in the New Testament, and basically talk about this Uh, this under-shepherd kind of a role, under-pastor Jesus. And so they are the associate pastors, if you will, who derive their authority from Jesus and obedience to Jesus. Uh, Thirdly, we see that serving under the elders of the church are to be what the New Testament calls deacons, which simply means a servant. That's literally what the word means, is they are servants. And what I want us to see is that they serve both ways. They basically serve as pastoral assistants. They are to serve as as assistants to both the pastor and to the elders. And so they serve the body of Christ upwards, taking uh, uh, their cues, if you will, from the elders and the pastors. But then they also serve the body downwards. They are servants of the church, doing whatever is necessary in the body of Christ, being very hands-on. And so you can see that they are servants. Finally, we saw that uh, underneath the authority of Jesus, of godly, qualified, called elders, of servant, deacons, Uh, table waiters are then the members of the church. And so that's kind of what we saw in summary in part one of the ox the ox in his church. Now, just by way of preview as to where we're going this morning, the, uh, the ox part two, the ox in his character. So we can move past that slide. <clears throat> in this morning's talk, basically what we're going to hear is the kind of men, the kind of character traits that the men who are called to be elders, pastors, overseers are supposed to be. So you can go ahead and move off that slide. Um, and so that's what we're going to be examining this morning: what kind of men should lead the church? Uh, in the upcoming weeks, in uh, the ox part three we're basically going to talk about the elder or the ox and his duties. That is, what are elders supposed to do? What are pastor, elders, overseers functionally in the body of Christ? What are they supposed to do? And then, and then finally, in the ox part four, we're going to talk about the ox and his, uh, and his flock. <clears throat> what is the church supposed to do with the elders? How is the church, the body of Christ, supposed to relate to its leadership? So that's, that's where we're going. Today, part two, the ox and his character, we're going to see the kind of character that qualifies a man to be a pastor, an elder, an overseer. Again, all of these are being synonymous. Uh, as I begin to think about this idea of those who are under shepherds, under Jesus, leading the church, um, this analogy came to mind uh, many of you have been parents and you know what it's like to have children uh, Shelley and I have obviously a two-year-old and one on the way and so uh, Something that I guess I never really fully understood until I was a parent was the idea Of being very picky and of be- being very particular when it comes to who is Leading and, and overseeing and babysitting our our kid so if you're a parent I think you understand the idea that you just don't entrust any babysitter to come into your house to watch over your kids. Um, Some of us maybe are more particular than than others or have certain nuances, but I think we would all agree that it's keenly important for us to have trusted babysitters overseeing our kids. And so Shelly and I are particular about that. Um, We want not only the person to know Asher and be familiar with them, but he be uh, familiar with them, but of uttermost importance is that they be trustworthy. (laughs) that they have godly character. And so, for instance, we as parents wouldn't just let anybody into our homes to watch our kids. We would want them to be moral. We would want them to be trustworthy. We would want them to have proven character. And by contrast, we wouldn't just invite someone into our home who might be some of these things, uh, a sexual predator. We wouldn't just welcome them into our home to watch over our kids. If the person has obvious character defects, we wouldn't want them to watch over our children in our home. If they're maybe mentally or emotionally unstable, we wouldn't invite them to watch over our kids. If they didn't have any common sense, we wouldn't invite them to watch over our kids, although they might have a high IQ. If they struggle with some kind of addiction, we may not invite them into our home. If they have a quick temper and might be quick-tempered with our kid. We may not do that. If they don't say, if they don't do what they say that they're going to do, if they have violent tendencies, if they're not respected around town, and you say, oh, so-and-so is babysitting my kid, and they say, oh, really? They're babysitting your kid? They don't have proven character. All of these things, we wouldn't just invite a person into our home to watch over our kids, but the sad truth is is that in many churches, uh, the character of the leaders in the church usually is not a high consideration when we go to consider who is going to lead the church and in churches across our land we have people who are coming into the house of God uh, the church the spiritual household of God who are watching over and leading God's spiritual children and yet their character is lacking and we are inviting people into our house to do that and so this morning what we're going to see is this What kind of a man does God desire to lead his church? What kind of men does God desire to come into his home, the church, and lead and watch over and babysit, if you will, to follow the analogy, his children? Well, we're going to find out this morning the kind of quality, the kind of character that God desires in church leaders, specifically in pastors, elders, and overseers. So let's do this. Uh, Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. There are basically a couple passages in the New Testament that talk about qualifications, the kind of character that leadership elders must have. And so what I want us to do is this. Let's just read through both of these character lists. You'll see a lot of similarities. There's going to be some repetition <clears throat> some minor differences, let's read through these and then I'll make a couple comments and then we'll have a, a quick or maybe not so quick interview with our potential elder candidates. So let's read these together starting in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we will read through verse 7. <clears throat> the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and fall into the condemnation of the devil moreover he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil turn now with me a couple books to the right in your new testament flip past first timothy to the book of titus uh, we see a very similar list again with minor differences in the book of titus chapter 1 and so in titus chapter 1 starting in verses 5 through 9 we see a very similar list Here Paul is writing to Titus, who has been left on the island of Crete, and he tells Titus to finish the work of setting the church in order and appointing godly leaders. Verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he goes on to say these are what these kind of men must be. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers, or faithful, some might be translated, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. So here is the teaching in the New Testament of the qualifications, the kind of character that qualifies a man to be an elder, pastor, overseer in the church. I want to make a couple comments, and then I'm going to ask Dan and Barb to come up, and we're going to do um, a quick interview with them. But a couple points that I want to make in regarding uh, this list. First of all, what we see here is that the New Testament is basically saying to us is that good elders are first good Christians good elders are first and foremost good christians and good christians make good elders um, which is surprising because a lot of pastors and i pray this is not true of me a lot of pastors aren't good christians Uh, They may be good pastors, but they're not good Christians. And so first and foremost, the emphasis that we see in all of these character traits is that a good elder must first be a good Christian following the Lord. Um, And so the point that I want to make is simply this. As we look through these traits, yes, in the context, first and foremost, there are a list of character traits that leadership, elders in the church, must uh, consistently pursue and exemplify in their lives. But this is not just for us. This is not just for myself or or Jay or potential elders. This is a list that demonstrates for us, this is a, if this is a, a picture, this is a portrait of what a mature, godly Christian looks like. And so I don't know about you, but if you're a believer in Christ, you want to be like Jesus, you want to be maturing in your faith, and you want to know how you're doing in that well, this is a very good checklist, not just for me. It's a good checklist for you. And so what I've handed you out and I really encourage you to do as we go through these qualifications is pull out your pa- I don't have mine. Pull out your paper. Show me that you have it. This is what we're going to do. This is going to be a, somewhat of a spiritual progress report for you. And so here's, here's the ground rules. Here's what I want us to do. After our interview, we're going to go through these and we're going to briefly touch on each of them. This is a portrait of what a godly Christian should be. This is what it looks like. This is the character, the consistent character traits of someone who is walking with Jesus. They're not perfect, but they're perfectible. And this is what I want you and I to measure yourself on. I don't know if they did this in the Illinois school districts, but when I was in school and grade school and in high school growing up in Texas, we would have things called progress reports. Do you guys have progress reports here? Okay, you do so you know the concept. a progress report is essentially this it 's something that at least for us it would be like in bet- we would have six weeks, and so it would be like six six weeks and every essentially then every third week, we would get a progress report, so right in the middle of the of the six week time frame, our parents would get a progress report now, if you were a kid. I don't know about you, but I, I, I didn't like that. You didn't want your parents to know midway through the, the, the time period how you were doing. We hated getting progress reports oh, it's progress report day, everyone moans and groans in the schoolyard because they know that their parents are going to get an update as to how they're doing midstream, right? If they're doing bad, if they're struggling in math or science or whatever it is, you're going to know. Well, I want this to be a sort of spiritual progress report for all of us. Let's look at our character in light of the ideal, the highest character calling in the church, the elders, and, and honestly evaluate yourself. So here's the ground rules. There's no doing it for your spouse, so don't be like, oh, honey, you're bad at that one. Let me mark yours. Or, uh, you know, there's no cheating as to looking at what your spouse puts. You know, be honest with yourself. Let this be an honest spiritual evaluation as to how you're doing in the faith. And maybe it will bring up some red flags. Maybe it will be bring to light areas that you can can work on in your relationship with Christ. And so, uh, spiritual progress reports. And so as we're going, I'm going to give you a brief time to kind of uh, look at each and every one of these. I would like for you to do it with me as I describe them. And so it's going to be kind of quick. uh, But look at them and say, you know, which of these am I doing? So that's that. The second comment before I bring Dan and Barb up is this. Primarily, these are given for elders so that we can understand uh, the kind of men that are supposed to lead the church. But secondarily, I think they're also given to the churches. These letters were written not just to leaders, but were to be read aloud in the churches so that the churches themselves could say, these are the kind of men that are supposed to lead us. They can evaluate potential leaders in the future. They can evaluate current leaders in the present. And so this is helpful for you guys in this regard as well. So at this point... um, Let's do this. Dan, Barb, why don't you guys come up and uh, we're going to do a brief interview. I want to share with you, uh, Dan and Barb, and their hearts and kind of where we've been in the process of uh, seeking potential elders and uh, future leaders at Grace. And so um, you guys come on up and uh, have a seat here and uh, we'll do this. You know what, Dan? I I, I copied your questions that I sent you earlier this week and lo and behold... I left them in my office. <laughs> so, guess what? You get to, thanks. You get, you get to ask yourself questions. How about that? Does that sound good? Maybe it'll be a little easier, right? Um, so, before we get started, I just want to share briefly kind of how this is all developed. I shared briefly um, on this subject a couple weeks ago. I'll give this to you guys. <laughs> yeah to let you take it um, so here 's where we 've been, like I said, for about a year and a half i 've been talking on the leadership level about leadership, all of the things that we 've been talking about elders, deacons, the church responsibility how does God desire that we organize our church? And so we've been teaching about that. What are elders? What do they do? What are deacons? What should they do? How should they uh, cooperate with one another? And that kind of culminated in a desire, both from Jay and myself, uh, to seek potential leadership of grace. I think it's a healthy thing that we always have in mind, those whom the Spirit appoints as future elders, those who desire to be future elders. And so uh, we began a process of simply Jay and I asking the question, who might be potential elders at Grace? Uh, we uh, had a list and it kind of culminated uh, in some part uh, with, with Dan. And so we, uh, Jay and I, prayed uh, over Dan. We look, we took the qualification list that you have. We went through it, that is Jay and I, and went through it and said, do we feel like he's qualified? We then had conversations with both Dan and Barb and said, let's walk through these. Do you feel qualified? We, we said, here, here is what our vision for what elders will do. Do you feel like you can and, and are doing this to some degree. And that culminated then, I guess, with uh, Jay and I and the leadership team saying we would like uh, for the church to take a vote of affirmation um, here in the near future on, on Dan as a potential elder. And so that's kind of where we have been, broadly speaking, um, on a church-wide level, I want you guys to hear from Dan and Barb and kind of how their experience has intertwined with, I guess, what I just shared. So the first question is this, guys. Uh, Basically, share with us a little bit of the process um, from your perspective as uh, being a potential elder candidate. Just generally speaking, how did it go? What was the time frames? What were some of the things that you worked through? Uh, So it's kind of of an open-ended question here that I was just going to give to you guys.
1: Um, I'll... um I'll answer that question um, with our experience here at Grace. Uh, I'm not going to share my life story up till then. Uh, we've been coming to church here about five years. Um, and one of the things that struck me from the beginning was that uh, I saw so much of an attitude of service here. Um, there have been people that have been involved in the Awana program for decades. Um, and just other ways of of serving and always serving and serving and there was there was just not a whole lot of attitude of showing up on Sunday and going home. Um, I it just really struck me that there was so much so much service. Um, I became a deacon about two years ago, I guess, and and going into the deacon meetings, it was the same thing. It's we're not sitting in deacon meetings worrying about. Um, where we're spending money and, and the, the, the politics and the government of the church. Uh, there was so much time spent on where can we go on a mission trip and this family's hurting and what can we do. And again, it just went back to service. Um, so I think, um, as you say, the process of leading up to the eldership, um, God really made it clear to me that this church is a lot more about serving and and drawing closer to God than it is just showing up, uh, hearing a good message and going home. So I think in a way I was groomed um, for the leadership in learning that it's really a lot about service.
0: Great. Barb. you want to comment on any of that? Yes. Rebuttal. No. Rebuttal. <laughs> Rebuttal. yeah. Okay, great. Uh, I guess the second question is, how has your understanding of eldership kind of grown through this process, as we have talked about the idea of eldership together? Yeah, that's for both of you guys.
1: Uh, the, the understanding of eldership uh, in the church uh, that I was brought up in, uh, being an elder was just another church office. Um, you got elected, and you uh, served X many years, and then you were done. And you went to a meeting once a month and you uh tended to the uh shingles that were missing on the roof and do we need to change the lights in the sanctuary and and things like that. And you served and then you were done. And um it it really is a good thing that that Trey and Jay approached um Barb and I about this over a year, going on a year and a half ago. It's been a while, yeah. It's okay, what's what's <laughs> this eldership thing? And The thing that really struck me and still makes me nervous is that, oh, this is permanent. Um, If you become an elder of this church, as long as you're breathing, you're going to be an elder of this church. You don't just serve a few years and leave. And I'm still nervous about that because it's just so foreign to what I was brought up with.
0: And we might, like, resuscitate if we have to, you know, (laughs) bring in the jumpers or something.
1: (laughs) Right. So the whole idea of eldership in a grace is different than how I was brought up, um, and it's obviously very biblical, as, as Trey is well taught here, but it has taken over a year for me to kind of get comfortable, I'll say more comfortable, with the idea of, of being a spiritual, um, I even hesitate to say leader, I guess that's what it is. Um, someone in that position that's going to stay there that has the confidence of the trust of the congregation and other leadership for a long, long time. So my understanding of eldership has changed from what I used to think. I think the way it's done here is right and biblical, and, and that's a good thing. Um, it's, it makes me a little nervous
0: at times. Again, I'll give you no rebut. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get something out of you here in a second. I, I just know it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just <scared. laughs> Okay, third question here. Uh, how, Dan, I guess specifically for you, but Barb, your input in this as well. As well, How did you go about, uh, number one, discerning the Spirit's call for you to be an eldership? One of the things that we're going to talk about in a couple weeks is that, um, according to Acts 20, Paul says that, the Holy Spirit is the one who appoints elders in the church, and so there is a divine initiative for leadership in the church. That being said, one of the things we just read in First Timothy three is that there, that a man must desire the office of an of, of, of eldership, and so it 's this this balance of God appointing and then a man desiring this role, not out of obligation and so how has that have you gone, have you gone about discerning both the spirit 's call and your personal desire to be an elder uh, i guess That's the question. I'll give you back your notes.
1: Um, I'm going to hand-barb the mic here (laughs) and uh, let her talk just briefly. Briefly.
2: Okay, so here's our story. Um, When when Dan and I first met 25 years ago, um, he told me that he was either going to be a dairy farmer or a Lutheran pastor, and as a good little Catholic girl, um, meeting a, a, a potential date, I'm like, well, at least he loves Jesus. You know, that's a good thing. Um, it was kind of scary um, getting into a relationship with with uh, a man who was so devoutly Lutheran, um, because our backgrounds were different, but. He, you know, those were his options, either a dairy farm or a pastor, and I knew that he had a dairy farm to go home to, and that was, that was a done deal, you know, he got his degree, he went back home, he started milking cows, cool, um, that's where we're going, we got married, and that was never discussed again, he was going to be a dairy farmer, Um I'll fast forward to March 25th, 2001, was a major date for us. That is a story in itself, and we'd love to share it, but we don't have time right now. You can ask us about it. Um, Dan, God had taken the dairy farm away, and that was no longer our future, and... um, the question came back up again. He always said, I'm either going to be a dairy farmer or a Lutheran pastor. I'm still Catholic. Um, we were attending a Lutheran church. Our kids were going to a Lutheran school. And he put an ultimatum to the Lord and said, I need direction. We're at a, at a crossroads. Tell me which way you want me to go. Ultimately, God did not give us an answer. And that night, Dan was just so frustrated. And I won't say he was bitter. He was very disappointed. He felt like he had laid his heart and his future on, on, at the Lord's feet. And the Lord rejected him, just didn't, didn't give him an answer. And that was really hard. Um, Dan made the comment. He said, that's it. I'm not going to the Lord again. If God wants me in ministry, he's going to have to come to me. And we've never discussed it. We never discussed that in ten years since. Fast forward another ten years. We're at Grace. By God's hand, we have left both the Lutheran and the Catholic Church, which, like the dairy farm, you, if you knew us, that was an act of God. We were both very dedicated to our churches. Um, So God had brought us to grace. We had found neutral, common ground where we could commune together as a family. What a blessing that was. And um, our kids were older. We enjoyed our time here. We even... As we, when we came to Grace, Dan delayed our membership. Um, we attended for quite a while, years, before becoming members. He was hesitant to become a member because he thought they're going to put me in church leadership. And he had been in church leadership in the Lutheran Church, and it was not a pretty place. It was not a good experience. And we both were hesitant. Um, to go there again. We became members. He became a deacon. I thought that was a good fit for him. Um, He's he's a fix-it guy, and the deacons are the doers. They're the workers, the servers. And when Dan came home from a leadership meeting and said, Trey and Jay have approached me about becoming an elder, And I said, really? I I was completely, I I had no idea, really, I, okay. We were very humbled as we started to look at God's word and the scriptures that Trey was giving us. Um, To think that the church leadership felt that Dan was qualified to do this was very humbling, Um, but... As Dan said, it was kind of scary. This is, this is a different elder than we are used to. We've never um, been in a church that had this kind of leadership. And um, it was just scary. So finally, in the second, third meeting that I'm having with, we had with Trey, Trey used the word elder and pastor synonymously. And when he did that, this light bulb went on. And I said, Dan, ten years ago, you said that you were not going to God again. If he wanted you in ministry, that he had to come to you. And I said, these guys have come to you. And I think Dan's desire, Dan's calling... Has has been there since you know 25 years plus that I've known him. He's it's it's always been a part of his heart, but our circumstances and our situation, it it wasn't. God has moved mountains to get us to this point, and maybe this isn't the maybe this isn't the right time. But I know that sometime it's I know it's in God in Dan's future.
0: Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was really good. Appreciate that. Well, I'm going to let you guys off the hook for now, off the hot seat. Um, maybe we'll have you up again before the, uh, before the time comes. But uh, again, uh, thank, thank you for doing that. And uh, at this point, I'm going to let I'll let you go. And uh, we're going to continue on in our scripture. So why don't you guys give them a round of applause just for being willing to come and talk about some things that are, are good and challenging and personal. So thanks, guys. Appreciate that. So here, here's the deal. Um, what we're going to do now for the rest of our time together is I'm going to drop the mic. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to look at these qualifications in more detail. It's going to be hot. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be quick. And uh, so get your pens and pencils out because it's going to be uh, progress report time for not only myself, for not only Dan and Jay, but for you guys um, as well as we consider um, what it means to be a high quality character Christian. And so uh, the way I've divided this up is basically into four segments. And so if you want some structure, this is the structure. Four, uh, four different uh, areas of which these quali- these qualities relate. And the first section, as you will, uh, if you will, relates to the quality of relating to God. And so these are things that elders must be as they relate to to God. So number one, uh, not not be a recent convert. 1 Timothy 3.6. Basically what this means is that uh, these guys, must be maturing believers. Uh, This is pretty self-explanatory. They shouldn't have been saved yesterday. Um, There's no time limit. It doesn't say two years. It doesn't say five years. It doesn't say 50 years. But it basically says that they should not be a a new or a recent convert. And I take that to mean they should be mature enough in their faith to have walked with Jesus for a bit of time. And so the question I have for you in in terms of, of, of evaluation is, what is the trajectory of your spiritual maturity? If you were to Chart, to chart a line of your character qualities, of your spiritual growth? Does it decline since you've become a Christian? Does it flatline? Is it increasing? Is it a little bit of all of those things? Are you maturing in the faith? Uh, not only must he not, not be a recent convert, but Titus one eight says that he must be holy. Uh, when you do some study, this basically refers to his commitment to walk with God. Is he committed to walk with God? Does he demonstrate this on a day in, day out basis? Does he pray? Does he read his scripture? Is he faithful at church? There are a whole lot of different ways that we can measure this. Is he committed to walking with God? So how about you? How is your commitment to walk with God lately? How How has that fleshed out in your life? Number three, he must be able to teach and able to give instruction and in sound doctrine. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, 9, both give this idea that he must be able to teach that which is biblically correct, and he must be able to refute or reject that which is not. And so this is really the only, this is really the only function that we have as a qual- qualification. That is, this is really the only skill that is listed in all of the qualifications. They have to be able to teach the Bible. They must be be able to, to defend the faith and they must be able to spot heresy when they see it, because this is the role of the pastor elder, teaching, instructing and guarding the flock. So how about you? While you may not be responsible for leading and teaching a church, all of us are teachers in one way, shape or form or the other. You're a teacher to your kids, you're a teacher to your spouse, you're a teacher to your friends or maybe to your parents or grandparents. and so how are you doing? maybe with your kids? Are you reading them the Bible faithfully? Are you discussing their Sunday school lesson? Are you praying with them? How are you doing in your teaching role? So in short, as an elder relates to God, he has to walk with God, he has to be a mature believer, and he has to be able to teach and defend the faith in relationship to God. Secondly, in relationship to his family, something that really stands out when you look at these lists is at almost inevitably at the very front of these lists, we see uh, that how a man relates both to his wife and to his children is of preeminent importance. That is, emphasis is placed on the home life, and clearly we see from 1 Timothy 3 that the home life the house is kind of like a training ground for leadership in the church and that if a man is not successful or competent at home then he sh- will not be competent in the church so number 1 husband of one wife he must be a husband of one wife literally this this in greek is one woman man that's what it says a one woman man what i believe this means it's it's i think the the Yep. the best uh, interpretation is that he is sexually pure in relationship to his wife both in thought and in deed it refers to faithfulness it's a character trait is he faithful to his li- to his wife does he only have eyes for his wife that's what this means um, I'll share a quick story i don't know if any of you have ever had, and I I pray that you have not and will not, had a a pastor or a leader in a church been caught in some kind of sexual immorality. Uh, If you do, the pain probably runs deep, and the questions that, uh, the great damage that that can have runs so very deeply. Uh, One of the churches that I went to in college uh, was also Grace Bible Church, and there was a pastor there who was a Really solid teacher. I mean, I learned so much from this teacher. He was gifted. He was skilled. Um, after I left uh, that church to go to to seminary, a year or two later, when my sister was actually attending the church, we found out that the senior pastor who had written several books, a uh, rising, I don't, don't want to call him star, but a really kind of rising kind of figure in, in Christianity, at least in Texas, um, he was having an online affair that had escalated to a physical affair and he actually left his wife and his three kids to go be with his soulmate and uh, you can only begin to imagine the ramifications that that has on a church when the man who is teaching them truth is living a lie and so the Bible begins here (laughs) because I think it's such a, a, a struggle and such a temptation to those in spiritual leadership and so as it relates to you As it relates to you, men, I'll start with you. Um, Are you a one-woman man? Are you a one-woman man? Would your computer say so? If I went through and looked through all of the sites that you have been at this past week, would it affirm that you're a one-woman man? What happens in your mind if there was a videotape of things that go through your mind Would that videotape, if we played it right now, affirm that you are a one-woman man? Ladies, are you flirtatious with other men when your husband's not in the room or at the event? Maybe in your mind, what you daydream about, whether it be real men or imagined men, are you, what I would say, if you're married, would you be a one-man woman? Um, Secondly, not only must he be a one-woman man, Scripture says he must manage his own household and keep his children submissive. I've talked about this briefly, but I think this entails a lot of things. It entails providing financially. I think the main thrust is essentially being a good spiritual leader of the household. Are your kids out of control? Are they wild? Are they rebellious? Or do they respect your authority? Um, Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, the Puritans who settled and founded this country, you know what they would call their family? They would call their family Little Church. They would call their family unit a little church. You know why? Because they recognize that any spiritual development and leadership from the male begins in the house, and then it infiltrates his ministry in the church. And so this must be true of pastor elders' leaders. Uh, they They manage their own household well, keeping their children submissive. So how, men, I'll ask you specifically on this, How are you doing with that? I think as men, our great temptation is to let our wives do these things. I think our temptation is to be spiritual wimps, to not lead spiritually, to let her pray, to let her initiate, to let her take the kids to church, to let her read her Bible, to let her initiate the study, to let her deal with disciplining the kids and teaching and training the kids about the Bible and spiritual things. Are they learning that, men? From you. So, in short, as to his family, an elder must love his wife, lead his home, and be a, a successful father, is how I would summarize it. Third, not as it relates to God, uh, his family, now as it relates to, to himself. How, uh, what must he be in his character? Number one, uh, 1 Timothy 3 it says, He aspires to the office of overseer. He aspires to the office of overseer. That basically means that he doesn't do it out of obligation. He's not in church leadership because someone asks him to or because he feels obligated to. He wants to. And so let me ask you this question. And whatever ministry you might be engaged in, whether from Awana to the diner to small groups to cafe to whatever ministry it is to singing up here, is it something that you're doing out of obligation or is it something that you're doing, as this scripture says, because he aspires, you aspire to do it you want to do it. That's the kind of service that God wants. Secondly, it says that he must be above reproach. In a couple places, this is really a strong emphasis. Basically, this means, it's kind of a junk drawer, kind of a term. It basically means that you can't be accused of having some kind of consistent character flaw or some kind of consistent behavior that is not fitting of leadership. And so the question both for us and for you is, is there a habit in your life that's consistent over a period of time that everyone could point out, that they could say, this is you, consistently, consistently? They can accuse you of something. Number three, sober-minded. 1 Timothy 3.2, it says that he must be sober-minded. That's, that basically refers to his his mental life. It basically means that he's not rash and that he's mentally stable. He's mentally stable. And so um, we don't want mentally unstable people leaving the church is basically what that means. So what about you? Would people say that you are impulsive, moody, inconsistent maybe in your behaviors, mentally not together. This is the idea of sober-mindedness. Number four, self-controlled. Self-controlled. Similar, but it essentially means that he has good judgment and has common sense, is wise, if you will. He's self-controlled in these areas of his life. And so the question that should be asked of us and you is, uh, do people come to you for advice? Would they come to you asking your opinion because they trust your judgment on issues? Do they consider you wise? Fifth, it says he must not be a drunkard, which simply means he must not, be getting drunk. That's all that that means. Uh, By implication, it may uh, have the idea that there shouldn't be any addictions in his life that control his behavior. There shouldn't be anything outside that is affecting his behavior. Uh, But here, contextually, he must not get drunk. And so questions that I would pose to you and to me and to us, do you depend on things to cope? Maybe it's alcohol. We depend on that to cope. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's food. We depend on that to cope. Maybe it's gambling or shopping or even workaholism. I, there are a million things uh, that we can depend on to cope. N- uh, number six, not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. First Timothy three three. That basically means that he's his life is not driven by the almighty dollar. That's not his purpose in life. Is to make money and for it to be his God. Nothing wrong with making money. Nothing wrong with having money. But here, it's the idea that he doesn't love money. And so, uh, by implication, maybe you could say he's content financially. He is honest in his business dealings. Money is not the driving force of his life, having more and more. So what about you? Do you consistently complain about your salary? Are you comparing yourself to others, always wanting to go one step higher up the materialism scale. Number seven, lastly here, it says he must not be quick-tempered, Titus one seven. That basically means that he doesn't have a consistent short fuse, that it's not going off all the time consistently, and so um, that means for us and for you, uh, do you find yourself talking before you think? Do we find ourselves reacting instead of responding? Are we easily irritated or angered on a consistent basis so that our normal response is patience instead of blowing up. I ran across a story um, about a pastor and he was uh, riding down the street in his in his bicycle, just taking a leisurely stroll. And he's riding down the street and he happens to come upon a little boy who's sitting in a lawn chair and there's a lawnmower next to him and it says, for sale. And so this intrigued the pastor. He had been wanting to get a new mower and he thought this would be a good idea. And so he stopped and he talked to the little boy and he said, you know, I need I've been looking for a, a, a lawnmower. Is, is, you know, how much do you want for that? And he said, well, really, I just want to get enough money out of this old lawnmower to get a new bike. And so the, the pastor thought a bit, and he said, how about we just swap, even trade? I'll give you my bike, and I'll take your lawnmower. And the boy smiled, and he said, It's a deal, and so they swapped, and he started to get on the bike and ride around, and and the pastor uh, leaned over and started to, you know, start it up to check it out, and he pulled it once, and it wouldn't work, and he pulled it twice, and it wouldn't work, and he pulled it a third time, and it wouldn't work, and so he he went back to the boy and stopped him on his bike, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble starting this lawnmower up. I just can't get it to start, and the little boy said, well, my dad says that if you want to start it, you have to cuss. That's what you have to do. Cussing will start it. And the pastor said, Well, son, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I'm a pastor, and I've, I, I really have been such a Christian for so long that I don't even remember how to cuss, which was probably a lie. But uh, he, he told the little boy that I just don't remember how to cuss. I'm, I'm a pastor. To which the little boy responded, Well, um, try, try it a few more times. I think you'll remember. <laughs> um, you know, here we see that... Uh, leaders in the church must not be quick-tempered. So uh, as, as he relates to himself, in short, he's mentally stable, he's emotionally stable, and you could say he's free from uh, the addiction of alcohol, if not other things. And so, uh, number four, the last kind of list here. You guys keeping up with me, by the way, on this? Doing your check marks? Okay, I hope I'm not going too fast. Finally, as it relates to other people. Number one, he must be hospitable. Oftentimes, we think that this means that uh, you must have other Christians in your home. That's fellowship, and that's true of a pastor. That's an important thing. But literally, it means a lover of strangers. That's what this means. Uh, So pastor elders must love strangers, talking probably about unbelievers. And so does he have unbelievers in his life, in his home, in his office, in his rec league? Is he interacting? Is he hospitable towards those who are not in the faith? What about you? Are you hospitable to those who are not in the faith? When was the last time that you had an unbeliever in your home for dinner or for coffee? Uh, When was the last time that you had maybe a neighbor over who didn't know the Lord? Are you hospitable Number two, respectable. First Timothy three two must be respectable. Basically, that means worthy of imitation. His life is in order. That's the thrust of this word. He has an orderly life so that he is respected, um, according to his life. And so, uh, questions are: Would people look at his marriage, or would people look at your marriage and say, "That's worthy of emulation"? I would like to have a marriage like theirs. Maybe. How you handle money? Would they say, I would like to learn how to be financially responsible from this man or this woman? Respectable, worthy of Im- imitation. Number three, not arrogant. This basically talks to the idea that he doesn't demand his own way. He's sensitive when other people disagree. He doesn't push for his own way, he doesn't have to have it, but he's sensitive to those who differ. Not arrogance, so what about you? How do you respond when you don 't get your way when people don 't do as you prefer we 'll let you know if you 're arrogant or not. Number four, not violent first timothy three three one seven Titus one seven This is quite simply it just means that he 's not physically violent. He hasn't, you know, he doesn't take a parishioner who disagrees with him, pulls his shirt over him and decks him. That's basically what it means. In the middle of a hot-tempered leadership meeting, he doesn't lose his cool and go to blows with someone. That's basically what it means. You're not physically violent. And as silly as that may sound, um, I'll testify, and anyone who's been in ministry will testify, that you can become very angry in ministry, and your tempers can rise, and and, and you could be in heated conversation. Um, So you must not be violent. Gentle gentle first timothy 3 3, 3, 3 3 he must be gentle this basically says that he makes allowances for people's weaknesses that is when people harm him when people sin when people don't listen to his biblically derived advice when they go the other way when they're rebellious and hard-hearted he doesn't keep a list of wrongs he makes allowances for people's weakness I came across another story, and this is a real story, and it, it's, it's quite funny. Um, but the story goes something like this There was a, a man who was a pastor, and he was in a church, and there had been quite a bit of contention in the church. There had been back and forth, there had been accusations, and he had gotten the past several weeks these anonymous letters in the mail. Gotta love getting those letters saying, You've done this wrong, you've done that wrong, uh, signed, no one. And so he had gotten these letters. And uh, so he went to the mailbox one day and he picked up his mail and he saw that there was another letter that seemed to be anonymous and he opened it up and instead of having a long-winded list of this is why you're wrong, uh, it simply had one word written large in this letter and it said fool, just one word, fool. And so um, the pastor thought about it, and this next Sunday, he addressed it from the pulpit, and he says, I've been getting these letters. Uh, Many of you fail to leave your name. I got one the other day uh, that was also anonymous, and he said, uh, usually I get letters of people who have written letters, but they don't sign their names. This week, I got a letter uh, from someone who signed their name, but they forgot to write the letter. (laughs) Um, Probably not the wisest way to deal with that. Um, Pastors, elders must be gentle, shouldn't... We must not keep a list of wrongs. Number six, not quarrelsome. This basically means that he's not divisive in an unnecessary way. He doesn't pick fights. He's a peacemaker and he loves the unity of the church. And so what about you? Do people see you as quarrelsome or a troublemaker or a conflict starter? Then you'll know you are quarrelsome. Number seven, loving what is good. Titus eight. This basically means that he wants to help people. That's what it means. You see someone who has a need and you want to help them. That's what it means to love what is good. So what about you? Are you sensitive to others when they have needs? When you see a need, how inclined are you to engage in that need? Elders are to love that which is good couple more, upright, Titus 1.8. It says that they must be upright. This refers to how a man or a woman relates to God through his word. Someone who is upright is someone who is sensitive and seeking to obey God's word. So here's a test. When you're reading your scripture in the morning or when you hear something uh, that's from the pulpit or or biblically sound, uh, which hopefully things which come from the pulpit are biblically sound, and you hear truth, but it contradicts how you've been living. It contradicts what you think. It contradicts what the culture says. Do you submit to it or do you just say, I'm going to blot that out or forget that the pastor said it or forget that I read about that this morning? Then you'll know if you are upright. Finally, it says that he's well thought of by outsiders, which basically sounds like what it means. It means people who are outside the church community think of him well. They respect him. They don't... Uh, talk poorly about him. So what about you? How do you think unbelievers are talking about you when you're not with them? Of course, unbelievers will say things that are false and slanted, but legitimately, how are you respected outside the church community? So in short, as an elder relates to other people, he's gotta be respected, he's gotta welcome others, he's gotta help others, and he has to seek peace in the church rather than division. And so we're going to wrap up. This is the character of a pastor, elder, overseer. Again, would you want this kind of a man or this kind of a woman to watch over your kids in your household? I certainly would. And I think that this is the kind of character, the kind of men that God wants in his household to watch over and lead his children. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, just the truth of your word. Thank you that you spell out for us so clearly the kind of men that you desire to lead in this church. Father, we desire and I desire to be this kind of man. I desire that Jay be this kind of man. I desire that uh, Dan... Uh, potentially be this kind of man and I desire all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ who have been forgiven of our sins who have been born again who have accepted free grace and have been transformed and are pursuing knowing Jesus and maturing in our faith and are growing in all of these character traits I want all of us who name the name of Christ to pursue this kind of character indeed it's a high mark And yet you, through your spirit, as we walk with Jesus, enable us to become increasingly more so and increasingly consistent in these things. And so would you do that? And Father, for those who might be feeling defeated, who might be feeling like they don't measure up. I pray that they would rejoice in the fact that their acceptance before you does not depend on their meeting these qualifications, but because you have qualified them to be children of God through grace. You've covered their sins. You have declared them to be right with you, and I pray for all of us as we pursue these things that it would not be moralistic or working harder, but that we would pursue you and that we would pursue the gospel. And in doing so, that you would transform us to be men and women like this. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. invite you to the potluck. If you brought something, great. If you didn't, come along. See you next Sunday.